0: whether we have believed this for many years, whether we're here wondering if we can believe, or maybe we are here and once believed it and now find our affection for you having grown cold. Would you step into our stories? Would you meet us in our questions and our difficulties? Would you help us to see how you take them seriously, so seriously that you became human and bore our burdens, carried our concerns? There is so much diversity here this morning, socioeconomic, political, cultural, and certainly theological, yet help us to see that we are in many ways all the same. We are needy, broken people who are looking for answers in a confusing world. Father, let us find them in you. Let us find them in the God who became human. Let us find them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. A few years ago, the American Film Institute conducted a survey of, to determine the top 100 cinematic heroes. The number one movie hero was someone that didn't carry a gun, he didn't storm a beach, and he didn't have superpowers. What Atticus Finch had, besides courage and tenacity, was an imagination, an imagination of a new way. He became an image-bearer of what could be. Gregory Peck, playing this role in To Kill a Mockingbird, played it in a very noble, very simplistic, and yet a way that conveyed moral heft and weight. In this story, Atticus Finch is an attorney who defends a black man against a false charge of rape by a white woman. And although he ultimately loses the case... Atticus throws himself into the trial with such reckless abandon that he wins the reverential respect of the entire black community. After the unjust verdict is read and is handed down by the all-white jury, the trial is over and the main floor of the courtroom has been evacuated. But the balcony where all of the black people have to sit because this is the segregated South is still packed. And Atticus' Atticus's daughter, Scout, is sitting while everyone else is standing. And as he silently packs up his briefcase at the defense table, one of the black men nudges Scout and says, stand up, Miss Scout, stand up, your father is about to pass by. And as Atticus exits the courtroom, every black person in the balcony stands at attention, both silent silent and reverent before this white man that they have come to respect and adore. You see, Atticus Finch in this story is not only noble, not only courageous, but he has an imagination that is revolutionary. He's the one with power, the one with reputation, the one with cultural capital who gives it up for all of those in the balcony who have none in sacrificing his own standing, his own reputation, and probably his prosperity, because who's going to come to the law firm of Atticus Finch anymore? He unmasks injustice. He demonstrates the poverty of the status quo. He critiques the establishment with his counter-imagination. Now, Paul gives us a poem here, perhaps an ancient hymn that he has borrowed from and now brings into this book, He gives us a poem that unmasks the status quo, that upends all of the assumptions that the Roman Empire had about ultimate reality and subverts their claims as the guarantors of peace and prosperity and salvation. He reimagines the world for them and for us as if Jesus and not anything else is supreme. As we look at this passage, he's going to say three things about Jesus. One, that he is a revolutionary image. Secondly, that he is the rightful king. And thirdly, that he is the only bringer of a real peace. First of all, revolutionary image. The imagery of the Roman Empire, especially of Caesar, was ubiquitous in that day. It was a part of everyday Roman life. It was in the market, the city square, in the theater, in the gymnasium, and and also in in the temples, and especially on coinage. And it was a reminder of who's in control, sure. But it was also proclaiming a mythology of empire and what the empire was there to do, what the empire was there to secure on behalf of its people. And mythologies always have to do with peace, with prosperity, and even redemption, salvation. Caesar was ascribed not only royal, but divine titles. As if he was the one who could secure in his own strength, in his own authority, in his own presence, all of the things that the Roman Empire represented. And along comes Paul. And in this little out of the way place, nowhere Colossae, he proclaims Jesus as the true image the true image of God himself. Paul's letter here, this this hymn, is more than a theological treatise. It is an act of absolute treason because it says Jesus and not anyone else is sovereign. Jesus is the exact image of God and no one else. Everything that Caesar says he can guarantee is false, Jesus is guarantee it. He subverts every major claim of the empire, turning them on their heads. Jesus, not Caesar, not Zeus, not the power of the empire itself, is the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer, the Lord of all creation. That's what he's saying in this poem. It's not simply theological treatise. It's an act of utter treason. Now, it's easy to see looking at the context and seeing these images of Caesar everywhere and then seeing the contrast with Paul's poem, why Jesus was a revolutionary image in that culture. But what about ours? Is it any less treasonous, is it any less revolutionary to proclaim Jesus as the true image of the invisible God? Well, we have to ask, what is it that seeks our imaginations? What is it that captures our affections? What mythologies about peace and prosperity do we believe as a culture or as individuals? The other night I was working on a project with uh, my son, Nick, and he had to uh, print out something that, that contained the alphabet, the whole alphabet. And so we looked it up, and one of the very first was, we just looked up alphabet in Google Images, the very first one, was an alphabet of corporate logos. Now, these weren't just Xbox and Lego, but they were IBM and Johnson & Johnson and Zurich Capital and all of those that an 11-year-old probably wouldn't necessarily know about. But he was able to name almost all of them. The whole alphabet of corporate logos, my 11-year-old son was able to identify almost all of them. Every day, studies, uh, studies show that every day we are bombarded with anywhere between five and 12,000 corporate images and advertising messages. Now, what are these things selling to us? Of course, products. They're selling things for us to buy, but they're also selling a mythology. In order for us to buy their products, they have to tap into something deeper. Similar to the images of Caesar, They're selling peace, prosperity, and even redemption. Redemption from our mundane, everyday, boring lives. They're peddling transcendence, a mythology to live by. It's a vision of redemption through consumption. And much of it is built upon, unfortunately, advertising that says something is wrong with you. It plays upon our fears of inferiority, and it breeds what some have called a status anxiety. Elaine de Botton is a writer, philosopher, cultural critic, and he says about this status anxiety that it refers to our need to be assured of our status in the eyes of our peers. A status anxiety attack, that panicky feeling that others are looking down at us in contempt or worse, indifference may strike at any time, for status anxiety runs like a psychological fault line through the geology of all of our sense of self-worth. Status anxiety afflicts as many people as the common cold. It is, this per, it is a, the pernicious fear that we are not living up to the standards of success laid down by our society and that as a result, we are on the verge of becoming a nobody. Those who suffer from especially acute cases of status anxiety may feel that they are social lepers, unworthy, unworthy. They cry from the cave of their ugly inner child. Individual Christians and churches, too many times, will display these symptoms of status anxiety. And in the face of our hostile empire, not the hostile empire of the ancient Romans, but of the contemporary global culture that says you are not worthy, there is something wrong with you, and it can be fixed if you will purchase. It is a terrible thing when our sense of identity is held captive by the judgments of those people that we live among, that we build our identity by an imagination that's been sold to us by Advertising. This can be fixed. Through consumption, you can be liberated. And this message is sold through images images of the good life, images of power and dominion over other people, images of how others would think about you if only you would buy this product. One of the ones that sticks in my head most. most perfectly to illustrate this, is that body wash can even sell you power. There's a body wash commercial where the guy wakes up and takes a shower and he washes with a certain type of body wash, and he leaves from his shower directly into the corporate boardroom with his towel on, and he gives a presentation. And, oh, by the way, about half of the audience is beautiful women who all of a sudden just look at him in awe. He has power over them because of his body wash. Tell me that advertising is not selling you a mythology. Tell me that they're not selling you power by the images that they display. Instead of being beholden to others for your sense of self-worth, you can have power over them. You can have dominion, domination. You can have transcendence from your everyday, normal, mundane life. What does Paul say to this? He reimagines the world in a completely different way. That there is a different image to live by, a different image to define your status by, the image of the invisible God. That when you see Jesus, you see God Himself. What counter images captivate you as an individual? What counter images captivate this church? What counter-images, if you're not a Christian, captivate you? What are you living your life for? What are you drawn to? What sets your agenda? That's how you begin to see Jesus as a revolutionary image, as he is put in contrast to all of those other things that you're giving your life to. Not only is he a revolutionary image, but he is, this passage says, the rightful king over everything. Paul is making this audacious claim. He is saying, you remember that guy 30 years ago that walked on earth? That was God. That Nazarene was God in the flesh. Now, friends, we can dismiss that and say, well, Paul is off his rocker and all of the witnesses are the same. They're just trying to build up their power base and so forth. We can dismiss it as silly, as farcical, as just a complete fabrication. Or we can believe it, and it changes the very essence of who you are. It changes your whole life. Jesus, in this context, can have no significance. You can dismiss him entirely, or he can have ultimate significance. Everything about your life is upended. But he can't have some significance. When he says that Jesus, this Nazarene, this human person, was God himself that can in no way just have some significance on your life. It's either ultimate reality that changes everything, or it's nothing at all. Now look at what Paul says. The Son is the image of the invisible God, verse 15, the firstborn over all creation. Now maybe you would argue to say, well, see, there it is. He's the firstborn. He's a created person just like all of us. He's just a representation. He's just kind of an image bearer, a reflection, a hologram, if you will. But he says not just that he's firstborn, but he's firstborn over all creation. And in the ancient world, everyone would have heard this in terms of the laws of primogeniture, that the firstborn gets everything, that they get the status of the father, that they reflect everything about the father, that the father's wealth, prosperity, standing in the community, all was given to the firstborn. That's what this is saying, is that he is firstborn over all creation, that what God has, his status, his standing, his divinity, everything about God the Father, Jesus the Son has. He's the firstborn. And then it says in 16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created for him and by him. And we don't have time to go into all of the the arguments and so forth about what those things are representing, but suffice it to say, everything. What Paul is saying here is that anything that has a beginning has a beginning in Jesus, that nothing exists but that Jesus created it that he was eternal, uncreated, the Son of God from all eternity. And then 19, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. This word pleroma, fullness, it could be maybe better said that God was pleased to fully dwell in Jesus. Fullness, pleroma, means all. Everything that God the Father had was invested in the Son, that exists in the Son. All attributes dwell in Jesus. Not only is Jesus God, but all of God dwells in Jesus. He is the absolute deity, the supreme, supreme over all things. And if all things are created in Jesus, in and through and for Christ, and that if all things hold together, that is, they cohere in Jesus, if all things are created in and through and by him, then his gospel, his message, the reconciliation that is offered through the blood shed on the cross must permeate everything. It has ultimate, absolute, supreme significance over all things. He is not a guru. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a guy. He's not just a hologram at all. He is the rightful king of all creation. And we can't come to God and hold on to anything. If he is the supreme being, then we can't come to God and hold on to anything as a non-negotiable, because anything that's a non-negotiable is supreme in your life. the very ground which Jesus claims for himself. Now maybe we think, well, that's kind of demanding of Jesus. That's kind of narrow. Why would he make those demands for us to come to him? Doesn't he embrace all? Doesn't he invite everyone to come? Yes, but it changes everything. We may think that that's kind of narrow and demanding, but something, someone, some idea has supremacy in your life now. And he's not simply saying, let me knock that down, but let me liberate you from that thing that's supreme, that is leading your life, and it leads you ultimately to disappointment. In your bulletin, I quoted in the front a quote from Kate Carraway, who writes for the Toronto Eye, a weekly magazine there. She says, when contemporary 25-year-old's parents were 25, they were concerned with keeping their options open. They were purposefully buying houses, making babies, and making partner. Now, who we are and what we do is up to us, unbound to existing communities, families, and class structures that offer leisure and self-determination to just a few. Boomer and post-boom parents with with more money and autonomy than their predecessors has resulted in benignly self-indulgent children who were sold on their own uniqueness place in the world, and right to fulfillment in a way that no previous generation has felt entitled to. An increasingly entrepreneurial, self-driven creation myth based upon personal branding, social networking, and untethered lifestyle spending is now responsible for our identities. Now, she's talking primarily about 20-somethings, but all of us believe at some level, that life is about our personal fulfillment, our personal comfort. Those are our base instincts that I'm trying to secure out of life as much happiness, as much fulfillment, as much acclaim as I absolutely can. But what Jesus says is that his claims are absolute. His claims are at the bottom. His claims are most fundamental and foundational. He is claiming to be the supreme authority that pushes out all other claims of authority in your life, that relativizes all other supremacies in your life. What we begin to realize if we wrestle with this passage is that a true encounter with Jesus will challenge a lot of things. A true encounter with Jesus will challenge your relationship with work and money. It must. We won't be able to pursue these ends for our own personal fulfillment and comfort any longer. Maybe we won't make as much money because we're giving our time to other things. We will begin to see our money as resources for other people, so we won't have as much because we will begin to give it away we realize that a true encounter with Jesus would change our relationship, our approach to sex and relationships. They would no longer exist to feed my desires for personal gratification and recreation, people from which we extract the greatest amount of pleasure that we can possibly have. We begin to see after truly encountering Jesus that these are people made in his image that have been put in our lives for us to serve. For us to give of ourselves to, for us to protect, not to try to extract as much personal pleasure as we can. changes our relationship with work and money, sex and relationships. We realize that a true encounter with Jesus will mean that we give up all of our theological and philosophical demands as well, and we let Jesus speak for himself, that we don't come to the scriptures any longer saying, Jesus, you can't say this, you can't say that, but we say, Jesus, what do you say? What do you tell me about my life? What do you tell me about ultimate reality? I submit to you because you're the supreme authority. We begin to redefine our own questions and answers based upon how Jesus talks about himself and how the Bible presents him to us. The hard thing about Jesus is that he will challenge you in all of the most important areas of your life. He doesn't just say change the periphery, but he says change the center. And that's very difficult and something that you have to wrestle with from the first moment that you come to Jesus and you say, I want to be his, to 40 years in where you're still wrestling with it because what Jesus is saying is that I want to be your center. In a culture that's drawn to designer religions and spiritual practices that are often just a pastiche of all the different Favorable things that we find in other religious approaches, that we cobble them together for our designer package. Jesus says that he is not only supreme, but he is the one true pathway to the life of God. Now, he will demand things. He will challenge you. He will make you uncomfortable. But if he is saying that I am the true pathway to the gracious life of God, that I can bring you peace, Why would we say, oh, but no, I want to live sexually how I want to. No, God, you cannot have control over my finances. Why would we hold on to these things when he is saying, come to me and I will draw you to the very center of God, that I'm the pathway of peace, of everything that these other things point to and have flavors of, I am really it. How could we possibly allow these other concerns to have preeminence? How could my personal comfort ever rival the claims of Jesus? He is a revolutionary image to recenter our lives around. He is also the rightful king, the supreme authority in all of the world and over yours in my life. But He's also, listen, the real peace. Notice if you look through this passage. Jesus is God, creator, supreme, dead. Creator, God, supreme, dead. We begin to see that Jesus doesn't come to tell you what to do, but to liberate you, to set you free, to die in your place. That he comes to take away your pain, your shame, your status anxiety, All of your hopes can be deposited upon him, and he carries them gladly. All of your sins can be put on his back, and he goes to the cross and says, I will pay for it. When we lived in Orlando, Florida for a year, it's about the hottest year of our entire life, um, but we had kids, and we thought, well, let's buy tickets to Disney World. Uh, We can go all year, and we did. We took advantage of it. Uh, and so we could go for four hours or so instead of feeling like, well, I've paid $100 a ticket, so I've got to stay here the whole time. Uh, but one of the funnest places, one of the most relaxing places was Epcot. Now, if you've been to Disney World, it's this really strange park. They've got kind of on the front end this technology pavilion and all the space age stuff. And then you walk into this other world where it's around a lake and it's a pavilion of 12 countries. I don't know who had this idea. I guess Walt Disney did. But it's a very strange part, but it's also a lot of fun. And if you walk around the lake, you can take, you can get a taste of 12 different countries. You can go to the France pavilion, and you can buy French-like trinkets. You can buy French-like bread, and sip on French-like beer, and so forth. And if you try really hard, you can imagine, as you sit there, being on the Champs-Élysées. I haven't been there. I've been the the Chant Silise and Epcot, but I imagine that's what it would be like. And if you close your eyes and you try real hard, you can imagine I'm in France. I've got this French bread, I've got this French music playing, everyone's dressed French that works there, and so I'm in France. And then you realize it's 104 degrees and ninety-eight percent humidity. That doesn't happen in France, or at least I'm told. What Jesus is saying here is that I want to show you the real France. I want to take you to the real thing. Don't be content with Paris in Orlando, Florida. It's not the real thing. It can give you a momentary taste of what it might look like, but it's not the real thing. Just as you can get a taste of Paris in Orlando, you can get a taste of peace in consumption. You can get a taste of peace by having power and dominion over other people because you rule over them, and rulers have a certain level of peace that we common folk don't have. You can have a taste of peace in building up your status through achievement, in using others for your personal gain. But it's not the real thing. It's not the real peace. It's not the real Paris These images that we serve will lead us to give up almost anything and everything and yet leave us wanting more. Jesus is the image that serves you. Jesus is the image that walks into your life. Jesus is the image that says, give up everything, but I will give you everything. I will give you the peace that you've been looking for at Epcot. I'll give you real, true, lasting peace. You'll have to give up all other images of me, all other images that you serve. But you will also get to dismiss all the other false pathways that lead you astray. You get to have the real thing, God, creator, supreme, dead for you. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, pleased to make peace through his blood shed on the cross. Do you get that? He doesn't come just to tell you what to do. He comes to shed his blood on your behalf, to pay for everything that you have done that has led you away from him, to pay for your rebellion and your sin, to say, I don't require anything of you except to come to me, except to be needy, except to say, yes, Jesus, I want the real thing. I want real peace, and I believe it only comes through you. He offers you everything. God, creator, sustainer, supreme, dead for you, and yet raised to new life, to begin something fresh, something new that will involve not only your own story, but the whole story of the entire world. We'll end with this, Charles Wesley's quote that I gave you on the front. "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore this strange design? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite, his grace, emptied himself of all but love." and bled for Adam's helpless race. Would you admit that you are helpless? Would you admit now that you are needy of ultimate peace? And would you begin to come, walk forward, petition Christ to be your real peace? Let's pray together. Father, this is so much to think about. And on one hand, we think, well, it's easy. We just step forward, and that's very true, but it's also very costly. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to count the cost and that we would be able to see that all of these other tastes of peace, taste of what ultimate reality should look like, that we pray you would help us to sh- help to show us what ultimate reality does look like, help to usher us in to the true peace of the Savior Jesus. We pray in his name.